today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, advice for industry software sellers. The companies that are going to sell their software for highly sensitive missions really need to expect that that software is going to be attacked and it's going to be attacked by very sophisticated adversaries. What not to expect when you're building a cyber workforce. Stop looking for unicorns. <laughs> Everybody's not going to have a degree. Everybody's not going to have seven or eight certifications. Everybody's not going to have 50 years of experience on the topic that just came out last year. And the big bet the Defense Department's making in cyber. We believe that uh, Zero Trust offers us a way uh, to uh, basically trust no one and verify every transaction on the network. It's Tuesday, October 19th, 2021, day two of Cyber Week. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Four Biden administration nominees are closer to taking jobs in the Defense Department. Nick Girton, the nominee for Director of Operational Test and Evaluation. Alexandra Baker, the choice for Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. John Coffey, the selection for Navy General Counsel. And Doug Bush, the nominee to be the Assistant Army Secretary for Acquisition Logistics and Technology, went before the Senate Armed Services Committee today. No word yet on when the committee will vote on their nominations. The Army says its delay of the integrated virtual augmentation system isn't a stop of the program. Senior acquisition official Karen Saunders and the commander of Army Futures Command, General John Murray, say the procurement timeline will still be six to ten years ahead of a traditional acquisition. The Army announced last week it's moving the operational testing of the system to May of next year. Cybersecurity resiliency is challenge one on the Commerce Department's list of top management challenges for fiscal 2022, according to the department's inspector general. IG Peggy Gustafson writes to department leadership three priority areas for cyber include improving threat response, maturing the department's IT program, and fulfilling President Biden's cyber executive order. You can read more about these stories and many others at fedscoop.com. Leading government cyber experts like the chairman of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, Senator Gary Peters, will join me at Palo Alto's Public Sector Ignite Virtual Conference Thursday, November 18th. Hope you'll join me too. You'll learn about key cybersecurity issues impacting agencies, including zero trust, endpoint detection and response, and secure remote access. You can sign up now at ignite.paloaltonetworks.com. The Justice Department says it will use the False Claims Act to pursue contractors that don't meet cyber standards. Assistant Attorney General Brian Boynton says his department will work with whistleblowers to pursue the cases. Jack Wilmer is CEO of CoreForce. He's former Chief Information Security Officer at the Defense Department. Jack, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What does that ideal relationship look like in your view that the Justice Department is getting at here? The relationship between the vendor and the agency that it serves, or broadly the vendor community and the government as an enterprise. Welcome, Jack. Yeah, thank you, Francis. It's great to be here. You know, I, I think that I, I would even say that that same relationship that you're alluding to needs to exist just between the vendors and all of their customers, regardless of whether it's government uh, or industry or just individuals. And I think that uh, you know, I applaud uh, the Justice Department uh, in their efforts to try and drive more accountability into the vendor space for cybersecurity. Uh, but I also think that that's an area that has been uh, of increasing interest and uh, uh, and 
you know, vendors are actually taking steps and have been over the last probably decade uh, to really step up their game in the cybersecurity space. Um, but I do think that uh, holding those accountable who are not uh, taking those steps that they should be, that are not, uh, you know, especially for government contractors that are not ensuring that they comply with the, the standards that they, you know, are attesting to the fact that they're compliant with uh, is really, really important. I think what you're getting at there is interesting, Jack, because in my space where people are thinking about the government and their and the the vendors that serve it, we tend to hyper focus on that. And it sounds like you don't think there really should be any daylight between what a vendor does for a commercial customer and what a vendor does for a government customer. Am I understanding correctly? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I think some of the areas where government has been most effective in driving cybersecurity change are things like um, you know, what is considered to be a very pro painful process of like FedRAMP, uh, where we've actually worked with some very well-known vendors that serve, you know, the American people, American businesses and international companies as well, uh, that have had pretty substantial cybersecurity issues that were uncovered through that FedRAMP process. Um, but by going through that process, they were able to identify and then remediate those issues, not just for their government instances, but for uh, all of their, you know, commercial cloud offerings in general. So, yes, you know, I think government can play an important role in a forcing function to help drive uh, greater accountability for cybersecurity for these companies. But I think it's critically important that they apply those uh, fixes, those changes to all of their offerings, not just those for the government. You touched on something there a moment ago that I don't think I've heard before. And that is the fact that by going through the FedRAMP process, a vendor uncovers some sort of issue that that vendor didn't know it had. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to ask you to, to name names, but is there a theme to those kinds of problems that vendors find when they go through these certification processes to serve the government that then serves them well in their in their commercial offerings? Yeah, I, I would say we've, we've seen a wide variety of things and everything from how the vendor actually delivers patches and ensures a rapid response to uh, you know, urgent cybersecurity findings. So, for example, if a new, uh, you know, category one, you know, high priority vulnerability is discovered, how quickly can they actually apply that patch across their enterprise? You know, do they have a documented process for doing patch management? So that would be a, a class of error uh, of of areas where. Uh, that's probably hit most of the vendors. But then there's also uh, specific, you know, real cybersecurity issues that were found uh, just in going through, uh, you know, trying to show compliance. And, and again, you know, you know, I think that this is where uh, a lot is made about how kind of painful it is to offer cybersecurity solutions to the government. And a lot of industry, uh, a lot of companies say like, hey, it's, if it's good enough for all of these other companies that are using the service, why can't the government just use it? Um, and I think what, you know, what I found, at least uh, when I was involved in that process, is that, you know, that is absolutely true for some of the cases, but then for others that you would actually expect to have their cybersecurity game in order, um, there, there were a lot of improvements we were able to drive. What do companies need to do in real life, not what they think they need to do, in order to serve the government better in your view, Jack? You know, I, I think that one of the big things is, is <laughs> I, I would say there's two levels. Uh, one is just the basic cybersecurity standards that NIST 171, as an example, which is the whole basis for CMMC and everything else. But that's a set of standards that have been around for a really long time. And it's it's required that companies meet those standards. Uh, that's generally in uh, all of the DOD contracts. There's a FAR clause. I think it may be uh, government-wide as well. 
Um, and so I think that just actually ensuring that you meet those standards and, uh, you know, for corporate leadership, uh, like the role that I'm in now, prioritizing investment to make sure that uh, that the companies are actually compliant and not just writing a POAM that says, you know, plan of action and milestones that says, all right, I'll fix these 10 issues next year. And then when next year comes up, oh, no, I'm going to kick those to the following year uh, and never actually investing in making sure that you meet those uh, minimum cybersecurity standards. And, and I also think that there's a role for um, not really on the company side, but on the government side to be able to look at how do they better help these companies defend themselves? Because I think especially in the defense industrial base, you know, what we're seeing is nation state actors, very sophisticated, uh, you know, nation states sending, uh, you know, teams to try and exfiltrate information from the defense industrial base. And I think that uh, what they have decided is that one of the most effective ways to steal the U.S. government's uh, confidential information is by actually going after the defense industrial base. So on the company sides, uh, they have to really look at how they can step their game up and meet those cybersecurity standards. Uh, and on the government side, I think that, you know, we've got information sharing and, and assistance programs that have been in place for years. Uh, but I think we have to really look at refreshing those programs and seeing what can we do to take advantage of modern technology uh, to be able to help better uh, defend those companies against what's a fundamentally unfair fight. Is the government getting better at collaborating with its vendor base around CyberJack, or is it still kind of saying, this is what we want, and if you don't do it this way, we'll buy it from somebody else? Yeah, I, th I think it's a combination of both. I mean, I think that there have been improvements, but what, what I've seen is the fundamental like information sharing programs and the paradigms that have been used have really been in place for you know over a decade. And I, and I haven't seen a whole lot of evolution in those programs about how we actually share real-time cyber threat information. And I think especially when you look at all the advances in the kind of big data artificial intelligence space, I think that there's opportunities for taking a look at a real refresh of um, you know, you taking a step back, asking those companies, you know, what information would be uh, most effective in helping to augment your defenses? And then how do we, you know, really facilitate that uh, information sharing exercise? What is reasonable for the government to expect from its vendors? And is that balance, is it striking the right balance now in your view? Or is it leaning too much toward one side or the other, one direction or another? Yeah, I, th I think the government absolutely needs to expect some level of expertise. And especially, you know, I think as with everything, right, it's about managing risk. You can't eliminate it. Uh, but I think that especially where you're buying software that is intended for use in sensitive systems that we know are going to be targeted by really capable nation state uh, adversaries, there need to be uh, some serious cyber cybersecurity uh, capabilities in the companies that are developing that software. Uh, I think that in terms of, you know, red teaming and all kinds of other capabilities, you know, that the companies that are going to sell their software for highly sensitive missions really need to expect that that software is going to be attacked and it's going to be attacked by very sophisticated adversaries. And I think that that's one of those things that you can't just bolt on at the very end of it as DOD looks to buy some of that software. That's something that needs to really be in mind as you're developing it. And so I think as uh, companies are coming up with these new innovations, uh, new capabilities that they want to sell into these markets, I think that that's actually a really uh, interesting area for differentiation. And I think it should be a government expectation uh, to just be able to talk about how significantly you've tested your software against that type of threat. Jack Wilmer, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate your time. Francis, thank you very much. Great to be here. You can read more about cyber in the industrial base in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com.
Zoom for Government sponsors the Daily Scoop podcast today, designed with relevant certifications and ATOs for the federal hybrid workforce. Zoom for Government offers rich and high-reliability audio and video to work through complex issues and build rapport across government with mission partners and engaging the public. Learn more at karasoft.com slash Zoom. Two members of Congress have a request into the Office of Management and Budget on data on diversity and inclusion across government. Congresswomen Carolyn Maloney and Ayanna Presley say they're looking for progress in the data. Mary Galloway is CEO and founding board member of the Women's Society of Cyberjutsu. In this highlight from her Cyber Week event today, my colleague Jeff Stone of CyberScoop asked her what hiring managers should do when they're filling cyber jobs. Stop looking for unicorns. <laughs> Everybody's not going to have a degree. Everybody's not going to have seven or eight certifications. Everybody's not going to have 50 years of experience on the topic that just came out last year. Right. So stop looking for the unicorn. Look for folks that have the potential, that have the passion, that want to be in the space and, ex- and expose them to this, this industry. You know, if, if you can't find somebody that's an adult that has the experience, okay, well, then you have to step outside of your box and start talking to the, to the students, you know, and just show them, hey, here's some resources that can help you and your family potentially get out of the situation that you're in. You know, selling it to them as a way to change their life is what's really going to help. And just being willing to take the risk, you know, like even if it's an entry level position, you don't have to give them the keys to the kingdom, but take the risk, give them some training um, and just be open minded to what the possibilities are. There's a, like I said, there's a lot of great talent that we're not tapping into that can help fill this gap. We know that a lot of hiring managers and employers look at things like certifications. You mentioned college degrees as kind of being a signal that this might be someone that we're interested in. When you're approaching this in a more holistic way, is there any kind of telltale signs other than just noticing that someone is bright and interested that they might be right for this path? Um, they question things. You know, they, they look for a challenge. For me, I'm a puzzle person. I love puzzles. I love building things. And so when you see that, when somebody has that, I like to use my brain to think of problems differently. That's like, hmm, maybe they could utilize these skills in a SOC environment to understand, you know, what's good from bad. Um, they take initiative. That's a good, that's a telltale sign. Like, they're not just waiting for somebody to hand out to them, hey, here's a job, go do it. They're, they're doing some research. They're doing cyber competitions, you know, CTFs and participating in that. They're volunteering with organizations and they, they're trying to get some experience if they don't have it. Um, and then they're persistent, right? Uh, I, I've gotten a lot of folks that'll send me a message and say, hey, I'm looking for a job or an internship. And then they'll, they'll come back a couple of days later, like, hey, just wanted to make sure you got my message. And then we'll talk. And then they'll say, hey, I wanted to follow up with you to make sure everything is good, to see what the next steps would be. Those kind of people are like, okay, let's, let's try them out and see what happens. You know, and, you know, what's going to hurt you as an organization to just give somebody some training and to help sure. them, you know, realize their focus and their career path? You're doing that anyway. It's just a different way of doing it. Yeah. Um, so, so I can certainly <laughs> appreciate that. One of the things... Um, um, I think that the current workforce certainly uh, has been talking about more frequently of late is this issue of burnout. To what extent um, do you think about burnout in, in your observations or, or in, in terms of uh, the work that you're doing? 
Uh, it happens often. Yeah. <laughs> so I run the nonprofit as a volunteer. Um, I have sure. a regular job. <laughs> It's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, And then uh, I also teach and I mentor. There's a lot of things that we do. um, And so burnout's a real thing. Um, I I think I have burnout moments probably every quarter where it's just like, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. And I see it around my circle of friends because we're all women that, that like to do a lot of things and we like to be the best at what we do. Um, So to, to combat that, I always try to tell folks, Hey, Time management, time management, time management. If it's something that can be done tomorrow and you need to take a break, take the break to do it tomorrow. Um, I think burnout will continue to happen if we continue to have high expectations of people to be perfect or to, to, to meet certain deadlines or to meet certain goals, right? Um, right. I think burnout also comes from the, the hair is always on fire. So there's, it's always, we're trying to be reactive to every single thing versus trying sure. to be proactive. <laughs> um, but burnout's dangerous, you know, especially if you have families and, and, and other obligations, burnout can cause you not to meet those obligations. And so that's not a good place to be. So you just have to find the time and the balance and find hobbies, you know, like building Legos or, you know, doing arts and crafts or volunteering or hiking or whatever to kind of help counterbalance that. Mary Galloway is CEO and founding board member of the Women's Society of Cyber Jutsu. You can find a link to her entire Cyber Week event in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. On Wednesday's show, the CEO of the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Accreditation Body, Matthew Travis, on what's next for CMMC. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Wednesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Department of Defense will stand up a zero-trust office in the coming months, according to the leader of the department's CIO office, Kelly Fletcher. The military services are standing up zero-trust operations, too. David McEwen is Deputy Chief Information Officer for Cyber at the Department of Defense. In this highlight from his Cyber Week event today, my colleague from FedScoop, Jackson Barnett, asked him why the department is going all-in on zero-trust. We view Zero Trust as a game changer for us. Um, We've had uh, very good perimeter defenses for uh, decades now. We've continued to add to those over time. But uh, the advanced persistent threat, uh, nation state actors and their capabilities have grown uh, to where they fairly easily can thwart that and then live on our networks for a long period of time. So uh, we we believe that uh, Zero Trust offers us a way Uh, to uh, basically trust no one and verify every transaction on the network. So we've we've worked hard on this. We built a reference architecture, which we published earlier in the year. Uh, It's based on seven pillars. Uh, There's the device layer, uh, the user layer, the data layer, uh, analytics and uh, visibility layer, network segmentation. Uh, So there's a lot of complex pieces to this that we have to tie together. Many of the pieces we already have acquired solutions for. Uh, So what we have to do is add on some additional pieces there and weave it all together. Um, And for for instance, Google uh, with their BeyondCorp uh, solution, uh, it took them 10 years for their company to evolve to zero trust. And so so we're on that journey now with uh, arguably a much larger network uh, that we have to work on. So um, one of the 
in addition to the reference architecture that we published, and it's out there for, for anyone who wants to see it. Um, one of the things that we've done is, is we've worked on developing a portfolio management office uh, and staffing that up here at the CIO level. Uh, we didn't want to pin the rose on any one organization within the DOD to run this massive effort of uh, rolling out zero trust and, and testing all the principles and, and picking products and, 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 and deploying them to different networks. Uh, so we're, we're staffing up a team here uh, that is going to oversee uh, the efforts across the department, uh, working with all of the stakeholders, uh, NSA, uh, DISA, uh, the services, uh, the combat commands, and prioritizing where we're going to uh, roll out uh, this capability first uh, across the different networks. And so uh, that is underway. Uh, we're working on staffing that. Uh, we're, we're hiring a lead for that who will be at the SES level. And uh, we're, we're really looking forward to getting after that in earnest. Um, we're looking for funds across the department to uh, put towards the effort uh, as a whole, uh, buying some of these enabling capabilities that are going to tie everything together. So we're kind of at the beginning part of the journey. Um, we're, we're anxious to get started and, and get this thing rolling and start seeing the benefits of zero trust across the department. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned funding there, and and I correct me if I'm wrong, but the 2021 NDAA updated some of the direction of the strategic cybersecurity program. Um, I'm hoping you can just tell us a little bit about that change. What are some of the priorities and adjustments, uh, especially focusing on critical infrastructure and, and DoD capabilities? Um, tell us why this program is important and, and kind of what's going on there. Well, the program as a whole is very important because, uh, you know, IT operational technology has been embedded in our critical infrastructure and our weapon systems for quite some time now. And uh, that puts those systems at risk for attack uh, on those cyber vulnerabilities. So we, we want to improve the uh, resiliency and ability of those platforms to defend against uh, cyber attacks. And so uh, back in 2016, 2017, there were a couple of NDAAs that directed that we perform vulnerability assessments on, uh, first of all, the weapon systems, and then the next year was the critical infrastructure. So a lot of money has been spent already on doing vulnerability assessments. Uh, recently, we have piloted through NSA uh, a threat-informed analysis of those vulnerabilities so that we can rack and stack what the highest risks are based on uh, known threats to those platforms. And so we're, we're really getting after this. Uh, we got through a good number of systems this year, NSA looked at. Uh, we're working through a process here in the building where all of those um, findings, those risks are analyzed by the services and agencies that are responsible for maintaining those systems. And if they can uh, fund the fixes uh, and do it in a timely manner, then they do so. Uh, otherwise, we have a good governance process that we can work through to try to get the funds allocated to those critical systems to get them fixed up in the near term. So it's a, it's a great effort with a lot of teamwork going on across uh, a variety of different offices here in OSD. And uh, I, I can't speak highly enough of all of the, the collaboration and teamwork that we've had over the last year to move this thing forward. Um, well, teamwork requires people, and I'd love to ask what you're doing to uh, ensure that you have the cybersecurity workforce you need to accomplish the broad and challenging missions that the DoD has. Uh, I know you're 
competing with both private sector and other government agencies for that talent. So just talk to us about how you approach ensuring you have the workforce you need and what you're doing to ensure that you can recruit and retain the talented people that work within the DOD on cyber. Yeah, this is a critical area for us. You know, when you think about people, processes and technology, we, we definitely get after the technology and the processes and the people uh, we have struggled, uh, you know, since the, the boom of the Internet, lots of people uh, come into the DOD and then are, are lured away with higher income jobs. So we've had to figure out how to become more competitive there. Uh, we, we do have a uh, defense cyber workforce uh, framework that we've built, and we've built some uh, methodologies where we can uh, get after recruiting uh, and retaining top talent uh, within the DoD and be more competitive uh, with the commercial intersect commercial um, uh, industry sector. Um, so we do have this uh, new program called the Cyber Accepted Service. Um, it has uh, higher pay. We can move people up and down in that. Uh, pay scale a lot easier than the traditional methods uh, that we had before. Um, we can bring people in at higher pay rates. Uh, and, and there's a fluidity between uh, a person coming in off of the street and then maybe going back out to industry uh, for a few years and then coming back into the DOD. So we wanted to make that a little bit more seamless. Uh, we have authorities to directly hire people based on their cybersecurity skills. So that program has been a win for us thus far. And it also takes into account shortfalls and specific uh, skill sets. And we can provide higher levels of compensation for those who have those skills uh, to recruit them and retain them. So that's a win. Uh, we're working on an overarching cyber policy, uh, DOD Instruction 8140, which covers uh, a lot of different career fields and specifies the types of training that those individuals need. And um, we're, we're getting after making sure that they're adequately trained to do their jobs as well. So. Um, also, we're doing metrics to just kind of monitor how we're doing on specific career fields, where we have shortages, uh, where we have overages. And overall, within the DOD, there's a zero-based review going on where we're looking uh, service by service, agency by agency at the types of cyber professionals that we have uh, on the staffs there. Are they the right mix? And if not, who should be there and kind of recasting those positions into the right cyber roles. So lots of work going on there on the cyber uh, workforce front. David McEwen, Deputy CIO for Cyber at the Defense Department. You can find a link to his entire Cyber Week event in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. When you give us high ratings and good reviews, more people will find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The CEO of the Pentagon CMMC board, Matthew Travis, is on Wednesday's show for day three of Cyber Week. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.